Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling leased single-family homes. Are you interested in adding rental real estate to your portfolio? A recent white paper called The Rate of Return on Everything examined global asset class returns all the way back to 1870 and concluded that residential real estate, not equity, has been the best long-run investment over the course of modern history. Roofstock offers quality pre-screen, single-family rental homes located in some of the best real estate markets in the country, with quality tenants already in place paying rent. And now, you can find all of this without ever leaving your own home. Roofstock is making what used to be an incredibly long and difficult researching and buying process fast and simple. That's because they do lots of the work for you by vetting properties, tenants, and property management companies so you can have all the info you need to find the right investment for you. Generating great income from rental properties has never been simpler. To learn more, visit roofstock.com forward slash meb. Again, that's roofstock.com forward slash meb. And now, on to the show. Welcome podcast listeners and happy Halloween. If you're listening to this the day of launch, Halloween would have been yesterday. That means I'm in New York. So if you're in New York City, drop me a line. Come say hello. Also hitting up Orlando, New York again at the end of the month, Amsterdam, San Diego. Come say hi. And then Nicaragua in February. So drop me a line. Anyway, today we have a great show. One of the founders of Stage Venture Partners. He's also managed a hedge fund, a family office, and worked with high net worth investors. On top of that, he's been on boards of several LA nonprofits. If you're one of the listeners that's been requesting more about private equity, seed stage, and angel investing, this one's for you. Welcome to the show, Alex Rubelkava. Thank you, Meb. Great to be here. I don't know if you remember this. I, I love starting with origin stories. And the first time I think you and I met was over Egg Tacos in Manhattan Beach. Do you remember yes, this? I do. Do you remember why we had uh, originally crossed paths? I don't recall. It's been, it, it was so long ago. What is this, 10 years ago now? I've, I've only written two editorials to newspapers ever. One was to the Manhattan Beach newspaper because they did away with a wonderful volleyball tournament or really just kind of castrated the tournament, the six-man tournament. You know, and that was one. And then the other was I wrote an editorial about pension funds and all the problems involved. And this was a decade ago. We mentioned right away paper. But I, I, I think either in doing my research, I reached out to you or you read the editorial. I can't remember at this point. We said, let's talk about this. Let's grab some coffee. And so what a random auspicious thing to be writing editorial on something like that. And then Egg Tacos, 10 years later, you're in the podcast booth. It's great to be here. It's funny how much time that I spent in pension reform 
over that decade. Uh, I'm not as active in the topic anymore as I once was. You just gave up. Said it's a lost battle. But you also, you got a girlfriend out of it too, right? I, I met my <laughs> significant other, Morgan, uh, thanks to giving a guest lecture on pension reform at her graduate school class. So that is not something I expected to happen. All the lectures I give are, are attended by 99% men. So you got a little bit better audience. I guess so. I'm not, not hating, but that's quantitative finance. You know, that's our world. All right. So let's talk a little bit of origin stories. You know, so give us a little bit of your background. You're, you're in the pension world. How, you know, did you grow up wanting to be a venture capitalist? a hedge fund manager what's the what's the kind of timeline here take us take us back in time yeah so i'm i'm somewhat unusual in the venture capital world in the sense that venture was what i did right out of college which is not common but i did not get there with any sense of direction or purpose uh I worked in all sorts of things when I was in high school and college. I worked at a uh, hotel. I worked at an advertising company, at a billboard company, at a real estate development company. Um, I worked at a dot-com in the summer of 2000 when all the dot-coms were dying, and I hated all of it. (laughs) And the dot-com was actually just up the street from here in El Segundo, right on the border with Manhattan Beach. And they were dying at the time. They had burned through about $80 million of investor money and really hadn't ever generated revenue, but it was 2000, and that's how we did things back then. And they couldn't figure out what to do with me as their college student intern at the time, and I couldn't figure out what to do there. So you just made t-shirts. I, made, I, I did whatever I could. I, I day traded until 1 p.m. and then read basically all of the internet until 6 p.m. and I had to go home. And back in those days, you could get through most of the internet. In this, the is, this is literally, by the way, what year would this have been? 2000. Okay, so this was literally my, it was a year or two earlier for me. It was late 90s. But I had the exact same experience as an intern at Lockheed. I think a lot of these companies are like, we, we probably should have some interns. It seems like a good idea. Then they don't really have like a good program to actually, you know, let them do things or contribute, whatnot. We need some more interns. By the way, you guys email Jeff. We need some more interns <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested. But same thing. Like I would just serve. That's how I learned about stocks. Was it, was it Lockheed? It was great, great pay. Good fun softball team. Keep going. Yeah. So unlike your internship, mine did not have great pay. And so it was a kind of a waste of a summer. And I made a I made a vow to myself that by the time I got my next, you know, four hundred dollar intern stipend or whatever it was at the end of that June, that I was either going to find another job and do something more useful with my summer, or I would cash that paycheck, quit buy myself a surfboard and actually do something useful with my summer and spend it all outdoors. As it turned out, I ended up talking my way from the dot-com to one of the venture funds that had backed them. And I started there after the 4th of July. And I remember being three or four days into that job, sort of looking up from my cubicle and going, I can't believe they pay people to do this. This is the most fun job ever. And I have been an investor in both venture capital and in public equities ever since. You know, that, that's funny. I, I love thinking, do you, do you have any swag left over from your time there? Oh, that's, I wish I did. That would be great. We still have a bunch of, so I lived briefly in San Francisco and then Tahoe in the early 2000s aftermath. And, you know, a lot of friends were doing the, the dot-com stuff then. So I still have a fair amount of 
family beat was I remember one, but a bunch of t-shirts, coffee mugs sitting around. What I do have, it's unrelated to anywhere that I worked or participated in, but I do have a pets.com sock puppet in the box that I keep in my office as a reminder of what not to do. You can get a lot of this good stuff on, on, on eBay. I have a good buddy who's a natural resources hedge fund manager who loves buying up all the old like Lehman and failed, you know, Enron companies. Yeah. He'll, he'll buy like the backpacks and so he'll get on a plane or whatever and have like an Enron bag. <laughs> anyway, my old thing on eBay was always buying the devalued currencies. So I used to give away at speeches like the Zimbabwe $20 trillion, you know, dollar bills and all those things. So eventually fast forward, you did some hedge fund stuff, started Stage Venture Capital with your partner. Give us some general information about what Stage is. What kind of projects do you look to fund? Do you accept out- outside money? Give, give us all sure. that good stuff. Yeah, so Stage Venture Partners is a classic seed venture fund. So we invest in startups, usually when they're a year or two old, often when they have a handful of employees beyond the founders, they've got a product in the market and some early revenue. And we are business model focused, but not thesis driven as a fund, which is to say we only invest in enterprise software companies. It can be someone selling to small businesses or to the largest companies in the world, but that's all we invest in. Within that vertical and within enterprise software, we will invest in any type of technology. We will invest in companies that can be in California or elsewhere. We have companies right now in our portfolio in Mexico and in Israel. And we are not driven by our own views about where we think the world is going or what our investment thesis is. Instead, we try to have an open mind to the best founders and to the voice of the customers in terms of what it is they're buying, what are their pain points. And so you, you've essentially closed fund one, right? You're, you're on to fund two, about 20 million in size. So congrats. Thank you. Um, and Two questions. One, how'd you settle on this part of the life cycle? How'd you settle in on on seed stage and this industry? And second is like, how many companies are you looking to fund and per year, kind of the number of years you'll be doing this? Sure. So we discovered the need and our affinity for investing in enterprise software companies somewhat by accident, just from having made our first few investments and then really found where not only where we were good and effective investors and able to support founders with problems and challenges and opportunities that they had, but also where we thought that the investment prospects and the types of returns and risk were appropriate. Later on in this conversation, we can talk a little bit about base rates of success in startups and why enterprise is so different than, let's say, consumer and in particular apps. And then the final aspect of why we think that there is an interesting opportunity opportunity here. We're based in Los Angeles. Our offices are only a few miles, but several hours from your office (laughs) based on LA traffic. And what's interesting about the LA market is how much it's grown in terms of the venture business. When I started in venture 17 years ago, there were nine venture capital funds in Los Angeles. There are over 200 now. Mm. But despite the fact that there are over 200, you can count on one hand the number of firms that are specialists and excellent at investing in enterprise software at the seed stage. I would hope that our firm is on that short list. There are certainly a few others that we respect a lot, but we think that there's great enterprise companies being built here. And crucially, because Los Angeles is such a big market, there are lots and lots of customers here. And we help to bridge the world between customers, the big Fortune 500 companies that have offices here or are based here, 
and the startups in Silicon Beach and elsewhere. For the listeners that aren't familiar, seed stage means how big of a check range are you writing and how many do you plan on writing in the next three or five years, however long this fund? Sure. So typical rounds are one to two and a half million dollars, often on pre-money valuations of under $10 million. And we are typically writing a six-figure check, which means that we're investing alongside other venture firms or angel investors as part of the round. We are almost always co-investing along with other good firms into the deals we do. Is it normally you guys finding it and taking it to firms you like, or is it friends at other firms that bring you? Is it both? Yes. Mm -hmm. All of the above. Cool. Well, it's funny because I remember, you know, we, we've hung out over the years. I've seen all sorts of Ruble Kava. There's been the us having beers at the Berkshire annual meeting. There's been a really sad night for you, a kind of humorous. Although it actually was a really sad night for me, too. I'm pretty apolitical, but enjoyed the drama of election night where we had went to go watch all the drama unfold, which we thought at the time wasn't going to be very much drama. But I remember... We went to uh, a bar that was, I fi- I'm pretty sure, a 100% Democrat, right? I mean, it's L.A., so it was... The, the mood in the bar a year ago was uh, <laughs> universally glum as the result. But at the beginning, but, but the beginning, it was like happy hour time. Everyone was still excited, happy. But it was funny because you, in the, like 10 minutes in, realized like one state started to... Florida. Yeah, and you're like, that's it. This is terrible news. It's all going down, like it like started to panic and I and I was like, What are you talking about? Like no one they're like still predicting like a ninety nine point nine percent chance. You're like, No, 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 you don't understand. Like if this happens, this happens, this happens. And so it preceded all the dominoes just fell. But I was upset for a different reason, which was we had a tail risk ETF filed but not launched yet. And we were trying to get it out before the election because everyone is so crazy about the election. And then the future started plummeting that night. And I was like, oh man, I can't believe we missed our chance. The market's going to end up down 20 tomorrow. You know, classic emotional investor reaction. And can't tell you how many terrible emails and tweets we received about the election, both before and after people. Anyway, but that fund eventually launched, but it was a good thing it didn't launch because you know what's happened. We've had the this ripping straight up market anyway. But over the years, we've chatted about all sorts of different stuff. And I remember, you know, you kind of coming from a public market background, you know, tell me how that sort of informs or influences the way you think about seed stage investing. And then also, you know, I remember you also used to do private, some private fund investing or some private investing while you were doing publics too, right? Yes. Like you had some friends that were starting companies and, you know, did, did you kind of start to dabble and then say, hey, look, this is more up my sleeve? Yeah, so I can sort of give you a little bit of background about my career and um, that can answer the question. So out of school, I was an analyst at a firm called Anthem Venture Partners in Santa Monica. And Anthem was a classic Series A fund back in the day before there were seed funds. At Anthem, we invested in a lot of communications and networking in semiconductor companies and a few consumer as well. Among consumer-type companies that we invested in that I worked on while there, we were early investors in MySpace. We were investors in TrueCar, which is a publicly traded company today. And we were investors in Android. And Android, I think, is the, the really interesting one. That was a PowerPoint deck when we invested. I wrote the investment memo for the firm uh, on that deal. And it's 2.2 billion devices in use today. Nothing I ever 
invest in or touch or am associated with in any way will ever scale to that degree again. 2.2 billion people is a lot of people. So I worked there. After a while, I left. I did my sort of two or three year tour of duty as an analyst and then left and started up my own fund investing in public equities. It was a classic long short value fund like those of a lot of people that you've probably had on the show who are public equity value investors. But on the side, I would occasionally do an angel investment. And about four years ago, as a, a number of the investments that I was making started to have exits, I found myself in the kind of odd position of um, having put up good numbers in my day job, but absolutely smoked them in my hobby. And I was sort of wondering to myself, you know, why am I writing little $25,000 checks to these startups and not going back to this because apparently I've, I've selected well on the founders that I've backed. Uh, meanwhile, I had recently met the man who would become my partner, Rob Vickery, on the board of South Central Scholars, one of the nonprofits that I served on. And one day after a board meeting, he mentioned that he was going out to look at a startup he was considering investing in. And I said to him, I said, you know, I, I know how to do that. I, I've done this uh, for many years. And so I ended up canceling a meeting, going to see that startup with him. And then two weeks later, we visited another one. And then two weeks later, another. And after a while, we kind of looked at each other and said, this is fun working together. And uh, here we are four years later. That's a big one. I mean, it's so important culturally to find people you love working with. By the way, Jeff, don't get any ideas. As Alex is talking about his hobby and you and your option trading. So you're not, you're not allowed to leave. We won't, we won't allow it. Options and currency trading being about the only thing that's probably more risky uh, <laughs> than investing in startups. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I'm assuming, Jeff, I don't know, but I just, I'm assuming Jeff's terrible at it. So I, uh, <laughs> Jeff's sick, so he can't defend himself. All right. So, you know, one, one of the things, you know, I, I, we had another angel on the podcast recently, Jason Kalkanis, and part of his message is, all right, and the, the seduction, of course, is that everyone should be an angel investor, you know, and, and just, and then on the flip side is, you know, we've had William Bernstein on who, He's like, 99% of people shouldn't be investing their own money. So you have these very different sort of perspectives. But um, we've had a lot of email from listeners who are a little bit seduced by, you know, kind of the success stories. And in Jason's case, you know, it's easy to look back and say, I was an early investor in Uber. Well, obviously, when you have a, whatever that is, 1,000 bagger, 10,000 bagger, you know, there's there's a little bit of luck sprinkled in too. But but talk to me a little bit about, you know, angel or seed investing and in if it's harder than what's kind of presented out there, or do you think, or do you not think it's hard? Do you think maybe maybe it's easier for you? But maybe talk about um, kind of what's the most important things, you know, as as you're making these investments. Yeah. So in venture and in angel investing, we think in terms of seeing the deal, understanding and picking the deal, and then winning the deal. And those are three different things. And those are important for different reasons. So let's talk about seeing the deal. You have to be in the right places on earth physically in order to see the deals. Uh, there are only there are only a few startup communities in the world with an active technology and startup ecosystem. Obviously, Silicon Valley is the most important, but markets like Los Angeles and New York and Boulder, Colorado and Austin, Texas are also important markets. Not only do you have to be there, but you have to be in the right 
stream and you have to be actively participating in the community in order to be top of mind. Jason is a great example for that. Jason had been a reporter and founder of a journalism site covering the industry. He had spent 15 years building up relationships with top founders, executives of tech companies, VCs, angel investors. He's as well-connected as, as a person could ever get in the venture world. And he was that well-connected before he made his Uber investment. And so it's not an accident that a company like Uber went to somebody like Jason in order to raise his round. If you are not in that kind of a position, then the kinds of deals that will get to you are not Uber there will be significant adverse selection that will be present in anything you see. And it takes time to build up and it takes time to maintain access to deal flow. The second part then is you actually have to understand what you are seeing. And there's all these famous examples of people who passed on Airbnb and Uber and Facebook and whatnot for various reasons. Lots of people passed on Facebook because they thought it was too pricey all the way up. People thought it was too pricey who would later have made a 100 or a 1,000 times their money on a deal that they thought was overpriced. People passed on Airbnb because if you are wealthy enough to be an angel investor or a venture capitalist, you are probably far removed from your days on of sleeping on strangers' couches. People passed on Uber because they could only see it as a black car service in San Francisco. So you need, you need the imagination and the context to be able to conceptualize how big could this be? Is this something that can really transform the world? And is this founder somebody who can scale with that? Because they're never, they're never that when they're first raising their round. You know, Travis Kalanick was not the Travis Kalanick we think of today when Uber was a seed stage company. And then the final thing is you have to be able to win the deal. Often really good startups are oversubscribed. A firm might be raising $2 million, a startup might be raising $2 million from investors and have $20 million worth of interest. At this moment, I am competing to win a place in a seed round of a very hot startup that's actually based less than a mile from here, and where I believe they have three term sheets for the lead investor right now. And we're not going to be the lead investor. And we think that we've built a relationship strong enough with the company that we can slot in with whoever ends up being the lead. But that took three months of work to build up that kind of uh, relationship with the founders to get to know them. So there's, there's a lot in there you've wrapped in there, but let's let's kind of deconstruct a little bit about it. So the, the deal flow, like how do most of the stuff come across your desk? Are you actively searching? Are you just chatting with people? Or are you going to the accelerators, the conferences? Like what is the... All of the above. All of the above. And so, you know, it's funny because you talk about being in LA, but then you mentioned potentially funding companies in Mexico or, or Israel or where it's, is it just kind of a random, like what is, what do you think is the, the best use of time for you? Or is it just to do everything? So we, we actively look through our deal database software, trying to find a signal in the noise. And we're going to see a thousand startups this year between my partner and me, two people. There is no signal in the noise, at least that we can see. Right and you're, you're going to be making about eight investments per year. Is that right? Eight, nine, ten, something okay. in that range. So far, we don't see any signal in the noise. So that's that's like 1% of, so you're passing on or not investing in 99%. That's correct. And it's, it's important. This is my problem. I'm too much of an optimist is that like, I, I look at it, most of these, I'm like, that looks amazing. And that's why, that's why I'm a quant because I have no ability to, to filter out. And that's why having strong and consistent deal flow 
is so important. If you see lots and lots of startups every year, you can start to see quickly which ones are in over their heads, which projections are overly optimistic, which sectors are highly competitive. For example, last year we were pitched somewhere on the order of 40 or 50 social media marketing companies that wanted to connect brands with influencers on Instagram and Snapchat and elsewhere. And at least a third of them came into our office and said that they had no competition. And I would always sort of chuckle about that. And I'd say, would you like me to open my calendar and I will show you your competitors who I met with last week and the competitors I'll be meeting with next week. And it's only the context that comes from meeting all of these people, meeting all of these founders that gives you the perspective of knowing what something that is being told to you is inaccurate. You mentioned accelerators. Accelerators are often thought of as a great place for angel investors to go to look for deals. One of the things that you have to understand about searching for deals at an accelerator is that there is the front of stage process that is going on, and then there is the backstage process that is going on. So for example, the startup that I am working on funding right now that is oversubscribed recently graduated from an accelerator. Everyone who showed up at Demo Day to see this company was impressed by it. But if they had not seen it by Demo Day, if they were only seeing it for the first time at Demo Day, they are already way behind. I saw the company about 75 days before Demo Day when they just entered the accelerator. All the other venture funds that are in the mix and the angel investors who were in the mix for this company were similarly ahead of the game. And that's that's probably, you know... Five, 10 years ago, I mean, the accelerators, there's Y Combinator. What are some other famous ones? That's a yeah, so big the, one. The, the national scale ones are Y Combinator, Techstars, and 500 Startups. Yep. And then there are uh, other specialized accelerators. So in our world of enterprise software, Alchemist Accelerator in Silicon Valley is excellent. NFX Guild in the Bay Area is also excellent. Do we have any local LA sort of ones? We have a number here in LA. So there's Amplify LA. There is Mucker Labs. There there are three Techstars programs in LA. There's Techstars LA. There's Techstars Music. And there's Techstars Healthcare. There is an Israeli-American-focused one called Fusion Labs. So there, there are a very large number. All right. So, the, the, But the challenge, I imagine, with some of the incubators is what you mentioned, the competition, right? Where competition between venture firms saying, all right, these, there's, I, I, would, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's more competition to invest in those sort of conference or not conference, but accelerator-generated companies just because they have more eyeballs on them? Or is that not true, or is it... It's partially true, and that's partially the value that accelerators provide in addition to the mentorship and the guidance of how to build a company and how to launch something in a short period of time. But I use the example of the accelerators because unlike other startup fundraising, a company that doesn't go through an accelerator and is just going out and pitching venture funds, where they know that they're not going to see every venture fund and every venture fund knows they're not going to see every startup, even though they try. An accelerator feels like an even playing field, even though it's not. And for investors who are interested in startups as an asset class, you have to understand where something that feels like an even playing field really isn't and then what you can do to tilt the odds in your favor. And that's a very difficult and time-intensive thing to do. So for a lot of these where you're making, where where it becomes a competition or there's multiple term sheets, 
is there like a value add or pitch? Like how do, how do people try to win that? Is it that, that people are trying to have a value add from general partners at the VC? Like what is, what's the, what's the pitch there to the company? Yeah. It's often case specific. You know, usually we will try to have the founders of the startup we're considering call the founders of startups that we've already invested in and to check references on yeah. us. We tell the, the founders about ways that we are able to help either with recruiting or with customer development or with partnerships or with helping to raise your next round. One of my portfolio companies is raising a round right now and I have introduced that startup where Stage is the only venture investor in that startup. We invested alongside some sophisticated angels there. We've introduced that startup to 49 venture funds mm. in the last 30 days. And that's sort of what we have to do to help our companies. Do you guys participate in follow-on rounds at all? Yes. Or is, okay. So what would it take me so listeners can follow along. So the whole funding stage, there's seed, which is often small and, and may or may not have venture funds. It may have angel before that, but kind of just getting started. And then it goes series A, B, C, D, E, all the way down. I assume there's got to be a pretty big failure rate as startups try to raise money through the various rounds and achieve market traction. Talk to me a little bit about attrition, but also how you approach follow-on stages sure. uh, as well. So attrition rates from stage to stage are often very high. Interestingly enough, there really isn't data about what the attrition rate is from startups that are founded and that receive angel funding to ones that receive seed funding, just because the investors aren't reporting to data sources and collection is essentially impossible at that level. But there is data that shows that for startups that receive institutional seed funding, the drop-off rate to Series A is very steep. I believe that it's only about a third of the companies in the last few years' cohorts graduate from there. And then the graduation rate from Series A to B is about half and then half and half and half again as you go up. Rule, rule, Rule of thumb for listeners is basically the same thing as like the CFA pass rates. (laughs) <laughs> you just cut, cut cut them in half at each stage. By the way, I'll, I'll let you keep going, but this is a question I, I've I asked Jason. I've always wanted to know the answer. What is the latest letter in the alphabet series you've ever heard? I, I've always been curious to what what company in history has made has raised the most rounds of venture funding. You know, does it ever get to like Series M? I wonder what the, that's a that's a great question. Every that, once in a while at events, I tell people that our fund specializes in series H through N, uh, <laughs> just to see what people say to that. Uh, listeners, all right, if you you guys can find me the latest letter in the alphabet series, we'll give a free Idea Farm subscription. If you can find it and it's legit, um, the latest letter, uh, we'll we'll tweet it out and publish. Well, I it. don't I don't know the answer in in this particular case. I'm about to tell you as to which letter it is, but I will tell you about a company where I was involved at one of the firms that I interned with in college 17 years ago in the Series A round of that company. And I read on Dan Primack's newsletter, I believe, two months ago that they raised another venture round. Wow. 17 years later. One would hope the company had paid out some sort of return to investors over that time period because that's a really long holding period. Yeah. 
All right, so sorry I interrupted you, but you're talking about uh, you know that there's a huge attrition rate. You know what, what's the major reasons for that? And then I also you know for the ones that are successful, is it something where you kind of double down or add more funding, or is it you're kind of like that's my one bet. This is what we do is seed. We're moving on to the next thing. What's sure. kind of the so let's talk about let's talk about base rates and graduation rates, and then we'll talk about reserving and follow on investing after that. So with regard to graduation rates and to types of companies. One thing that's important to note is that returns in different sectors follow different patterns. And so consumer-based investments, consumer-based startups tend to have returns that are grouped in the best three or four or five investments per year. So the 2005 year of seed and series A investing in the consumer sector was dominated by people who put money into Facebook. 2006 was dominated by Twitter. 2010 was dominated by Snapchat and WhatsApp. The major, the major outliers. The major outliers. And if you weren't in one of those companies in, and you were investing in, that, in those sectors, then your returns look nothing like the returns of the funds like Excel that backed Facebook or Union Square that backed Twitter or Sequoia that backed WhatsApp. And so you have to be in the handful of deals that you can really count on your fingers that matter every year in consumer. In enterprise, it's not like that. It's more based on cohorts and classes where plenty of companies get to $200 million, $800 million, $2 billion in exits. And if you invested in a number of those companies at valuations of under $10 million at the seed stage or under 30 at the Series A stage, you probably put up good returns for so your there's, fund. So there's more single do- doubles and triples rather than grand slams. Correct. Okay. And, and the base rates are so different, and there are also so many more exit ramps along the way for companies that actually generate revenue and that have annual recurring revenue contracts with corporate customers than there are for consumer apps. There's a really great way that your listeners can sort of visualize this issue right now as they're listening to this podcast. So for those of you who are listening on uh, the iPhone, if you go to settings, and Meb, you should do this too right now. So if you go to your settings app on your iPhone and go to general settings, you can scroll down a little bit and see a little green icon that says battery. And click on your battery usage. Wait, hold on. I went too far. It's settings, then battery. You settings, don't need to go to general. Yeah, settings, then battery. Okay. And you look at, it will show you which apps on your phone over the last 24 hours and seven days have used the most of your battery. All right, I'm going to tell you mine. Number one's embarrassing. I need to delete this off. Twitter. That's number one for me, too. Oh, God. I didn't need, uh, yeah, Twitter, one. Um, home lock screen. Mail, fo- mail phone messaging. Those don't really count. Spotify. Although I use that through Sono, some music. And it, <laughs> here's one that's hilarious. And I, there's a funny side, a quick funny side. There's a game, Clash of Clans, which my nephew plays. And my nephew, when he was in Los Angeles, is 10 years old. And he's like, Uncle Meb. And he, t- he wants to play my phone while he's here. And he sets me up to join his clan of fellow I assume 10 year olds, (laughs) but they have like a message board and stuff. And I'm kind of stuck in this awkward moment where 
if I leave, he's going to be upset because Uncle Meb left and like what, you know, rejecting him. But if I stay, I'm in a message group with a bunch of 10 year olds playing a video game. <laughs> so I think I think the correct answer is to leave and just be like, Landon, I'm sorry. Just I, watch, I, this watch game is distracting me from work, even though I don't really play anyway. So um, your phone is typical of almost everybody that. Uh, and then I'm going to name a couple see. more Instagram, Chrome, Tile, ESPN. So let's talk about... In Jeopardy. And the reason we I downloaded Jeopardy is because Jeff, Jeff and I and, and some friends were having a game where the loser had to pay for dinner. And so we downloaded the Jeopardy app and played Jeopardy. I'll anyway. play you one of these days. You can, <laughs> uh, you can look me up. Uh, I was on Jeopardy in 1997. Really? Yes. Amazing. Wait, wait, wait. How, how'd you do? Did you, uh, did you do okay? I bet very aggressively on a topic <laughs> that I thought I knew really well on a daily double. And uh, You're a European history female, female authors? It what? was colleges and universities. Oh, man. And I, had, yeah, I was sweeping that category. And then the question came up. The daily double came up. I bet everything because I was in third place. And wait, I was this the college con- edition or was this just actually, regular? It was actually the high school edition oh, back wow. in 97. So oh, I was man. 17 years old. That's amazing. What do you remember the question? The question was category colleges and universities. William of Orange founded Leiden University in this country in 1660 or 1650 or whatever. Scotland. So I guessed England because I knew that William of Orange was William the Conqueror, uh, and I was. It's either where he was from or where he went, and I couldn't remember where he was from. So I went with England, and of course he was from the Netherlands, and that was the correct answer. Wow, that's a tough one, man. Yeah. I was expecting some question about like, you know, Notre Dame football. Or, See, you, you know. learned, you learned a bet sizing question. <laughs> you learned a bet sizing question early. Okay. Sorry for my mini interruptions. Let's go back. So the apps. So back to your apps. And Yelp is, the, I actually use Yelp probably more than anything. That's, well, I don't know why that's way down there. So anyway. What, what your apps have in common is that they're either the built-in Apple apps. They are apps from Fortune 500 publicly traded companies. ESPN, Google, you know, et cetera. Or they are games that have app install ads that spend hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire people and they they monetize that through in-game purchases. What you are not going to find there and what you will not find on almost anyone's phone is some new consumer app that, that has been developed by a recent startup because it's just so hard to break through. Do you know how many apps there are on the App Store right now? No. There's over 2 million apps available for download on the Apple iOS Store right now, over 3 million on Google Play, and there's at least two or three times that many that were once available that are no longer It actually available. stresses me out. You know, I actually go into my phone quite a bit when I'm at the airport and just go through and delete a bunch. I mean, there, there's the ones you have for reference, like airline apps Every that time you use. do that, you kill a startup, Meb. <laughs> well, I'm just taking machine gun to them, because I'm, I'm also kind of a minimalist, you know, like I hate having clutter. And so I put them all into these folders that are in the way back fifth screen, so I'll never see them. But they're for reference, and I don't really, I only, yeah, I only use about 10. Right, which we just saw yeah. uh, when you pulled up your phone. And there's a bunch, phone. like, it's the same problem I have with Netflix, is which I always go download a bunch of documentaries on Netflix and never watch them, because it's like, I should be reading these, and it's my bookcase at home that I want, I, I think I should be doing this. Same thing with the apps, like, I have a bunch of news and abstract and, and, and apps that I feel like I should be using, but I never want to and I never do. So you, you, you don't spend your time on sophisticated European literary criticism apps? No, yeah. no, I don't. 
<laughs> no, but I, I have a bunch of the news ones that are like summaries of nonfiction. But so I, that's it funny because I don't want to do either. I don't want to read the book. I don't even want to read the summary at this point, but I keep the app because I think I should. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. What's the thesis? So you're saying it's hard to break in. It's unbelievably hard to break in. The average person downloads zero apps in a month. And any new startup that is trying to get a consumer app or a consumer tool of any kind is essentially competing with inertia. The time that you have a fair fight against inertia as a new entrant is when there's a new platform. And so if you look at the consumer apps that you use today, what they have in common was that they either launched right before the iPhone in the initial Web 2.0 era, companies like Twitter, Yelp, Facebook, etc., or they launched right after the iPhone to take advantage of the new technological possibilities. Or your or mobile, your Kardashian. Or your Kardashian stuff. And those things tend to be flashes in the pan. Yeah. So, you know, you think about Uber. Uber could only have been launched in twenty ten. That company and that product depended on a Slack labor force. It depended on smartphones with apps, which were permissionless app stores, as opposed to the decks on Verizon and, uh, and AT&T that you used to have to get on. It required GPS. It required Google Maps. It required all of these things. It could not have been built before that. And that goes to one of the key questions that we always ask at our firm when we're looking at a startup to invest in. We ask, why now? Why is this a company that can and should only be built today? And if there's not a good answer to that, if we look at something and say, the tech to build this existed five years ago and the customer needs have not changed in a material way, then it's an instant pass for us. If we look at it and we say, this is a great idea, but it's too much of a science project right now and it needs costs to come down or new technologies to come out of scientific labs in order to be commercializable, then we wait and we try to make that investment in three or four years. But why now is a critical question. Yeah, I mean, I think, and Jason mentioned this too, is a great filter. I mean, there's so many companies that are just kind of a promise and at least having a product or revenue, probably like then you mentioned the attrition of it being 30%. I mean, that probably filters out a large chunk. It does. The three biggest risks that a startup founder has when he or she starts their business are basically building the product, hiring people, and getting a customer. We think of it as can can he hire, can he ship, and can he sell? And someone who comes to us with a PowerPoint deck and a promise of what they're going to do is a big risk about can they hire, ship, and sell. Someone who comes to us and has a handful of early customers means they've got a product, they've got someone paying for it, and they've probably hired a few people to go out and build it and to sell it. And so those three questions really are are fundamental questions in thinking about where do you spend your time on which companies to research and which ones do you actually then make an investment in. Just had my wheels spinning thinking about apps because it's so similar to the investment fund space publicly with the ETFs, where if you look at these thousands of ETFs that have been launched, mutual funds is the same thing. The ones that launch early, so the spiders of the world, late 90s, early 2000, gain massive traction. And that's really the big three, State Street, BlackRock, Vanguard. And so nowadays, you see so many people launching these ETFs that are so not non... I mean, they're either the 50th version of large cap value, in which case there's they never will get any assets, or... 
they're the most nonsensical ideas trying to find a tiny little niche that's like the most ridiculous. But on occasion, you'll have the Kardashian that'll flame up because it's a triple leverage social media, you know, biotech fund, whatever. A lot of interesting parallels. Anyway, random aside. Switching gears briefly, unless you had anything else you wanted to touch on on that general 17 topics we were bouncing around. Go ahead. Let's switch um, gears. You know, so thinking about analyzing ideas and then, then I actually talk to me real briefly about syndicates and funds. So there's a lot of people listening there say, okay, you know, I'm interested in this space. I'm either going to do it on my own or I want to start doing my own deals or maybe I'll invest through syndicates or maybe just do a fund. What's your thoughts there? So in general, I think that if you're going to be an angel investor, whether you invest through syndicates on AngelList or doing it yourself directly, you have to be devoting significant time to it. You so know, it's not a part-time 10, 20, really gig. 40 hours a week. It, okay. it, it, it takes so much time to source deals. It takes so much time to research them and to put yourself in a position that you're in the stream that unless it's close to your job... I don't think it's going to work well for many people. With regard to funds, you know, one, one of the perceptions about there, – there are a couple of perceptions about venture capital that I think used to be accurate that are no longer accurate. There's a great word for that, mesofact, basically mm. something that used to be true that has changed gradually that is no longer true. And one of the mesofacts about venture capital – I can't wait to use that word. <laughs> I'm going to use it today. One of the mesofacts about venture capital is that all the returns are clustered in the top 10 or 20 firms. Okay. And that you or I or anybody who was not an investor in them in 1975 cannot get access to them. So the access question is still basically true. You cannot send an email to Sequoia or to Greylock or to Bessemer and say, hey, I'd love to put $500,000 into your next fund or even $10 million or even $50 million. They are fully allocated and their investors have been with them for decades. However, the change in the market over the last 20 years, in particular, the declining cost of starting a startup and the emergence of smaller seed venture funds has created an, a new class of venture funds that don't have that full allocation problem and don't, aren't impossible to get into. And so there are great seed funds out there that are investing 20, 50, 100 million bucks that are raising a new fund every three years or so that are actually relatively open to individual investors and that I think are a better bet than trying to do this yourself, than trying to do angel investing. You going to name any names or am I, are you going to keep your zipped about that. You getting good ideas for I mean, us other than stage? I mean, there are, there are firms here in LA that I think very highly of. I mean, um, I just don't know that world. So who, who's, a, who's a handful you think highly of? Yeah. So here in LA, Bonfire Ventures, which is a newly formed firm, but which was the merger of Rincon Venture Partners and Double M Partners is an excellent firm. And I know the people there very well and think very highly of them. And they're very similar to us in terms of a fund that's very different from us with a different focus. There's Make in LA, which is a hardware focused fund. And their principals and partners come out of the hardware industry. They know how to manufacture devices. They know how to do production. They know how to do prototyping. They have extreme expertise in that area. And I think very highly of those folks as well. And so what, what I think most people don't realize is that there's an entire universe of hundreds of funds that are open to finding new investors that are very different from the Kleiners and the Sequoias of the world who are not open to that. 
And your chances of success when you have the diversification of a fund and you have somebody full-time doing it, I think are much higher. And in particular, you can you can look at track record. So when you're looking at a seed venture fund, you know, probably you shouldn't be investing in fund one unless it's someone that you know really well that you've had a pre-existing relationship with. But if you're looking at someone you don't know well, are they on fund two? Are they on fund three, fund four? By the time they're at fund four or five, they're probably more institutional and your window of time has passed. But looking at, if you're considering investing, let's say in fund three, you can look at their fund one and fund two and look at what kind of returns they had. You know, the sort of minimum rate. What's, what's, and what's the typical minimums for these guys? Is it a hundred grand? Is it a million? Depends on the size of a fund. Obviously a 10 or $15 million fund will probably take someone at a hundred grand, but a $50 million fund, you might need to put up 500K or a million. So you need to look at a few things to sort of determine how good are they? Are they on track to make at least a 4X or higher net return on the fund? Um, and given the timing of capital calls and the duration of the fund, that usually works out to an IRR in sort of the 25% or above range, which is what you should generate to compensate for the risk and illiquidity of venture capital, which are both very high. You should be looking at how many of their funds graduate from seed to series A. You should be looking at who is leading the the series A rounds. You know, if you find a seed manager and their last five deals that have raised an A round have raised from Union Square Ventures and from Founders Fund and from Greylock and Bessemer and good firms, that's a sign that that partner at the seed fund is probably very good at what they do. You should look at how much they raise. You should look at how big their winners are. And that's one of the things that's sort of paradoxical about venture is that in any venture or angel portfolio, the performance of the portfolio is not going to be determined by the batting average of the manager. The, the performance is going to be determined by how big the multiple is on the three best investments. And doesn't that make a little bit of an argument for more diversification rather than less? You know, that if you only invest in, a, if the manager only invests in a couple deals, like, doesn't it make more sense to invest in 10 or 20 or even 30? Yeah, and so, and it's a fine balancing point, and different firms do it in different ways. The accelerators have taken a very broad and shotgun approach and are able to generate the returns that they have generated by uh, investing super early and super widely. And so they get the benefit of being in things like, for example, like the first accelerator backed startup ever to file an S1 filed this week. And that is uh, SendGrid, which is a Techstars company. And Techstars uh, owns a a decent chunk of the company, I think eight or nine years after they went through Techstars. But in terms of diversification, it depends on how active a fund is. You know, our firm tries to be pretty active with the companies that we invest in. As you and I sit here speaking, it's Tuesday morning, and I have spoken this week already with founders of four of 10 of my portfolio companies, either meetings or phone calls or texts or email. What's the mood? The mood is strong. <laughs> Our founders are out there uh, kicking butt and taking names. And so I can't do that for 50 companies. I can do that for, my partner and I can do that for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 investments per year with the knowledge that once they get to a Series A stage, I'm basically handing off that company to the Series A venture fund, and then reallocating that time to the next seed startup that I'm investing in. And so the balance point that we've tried to strike is that we want to make about 25 investments per fund 
over a three-ish year time frame. That gets us enough diversification in names and enough diversification in time and vintage year of investment that we think we can get a, a reasonable balance. You just need more interns. That that'll expand your your uh, your universe. <laughs> if only if only interns had a good sense of deals. You need a junior Rubokavas. Let's pause for a moment to hear again from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling lease single-family rental homes. I actually interviewed Roofstock's founders, Gary and Gregor, back in episode sixty-three. And I was genuinely impressed with how these guys are radically simplifying rental real estate investing. The process used to be incredibly time intensive. First, you had to identify a market, look at tons of homes, then do some due diligence, make some offers, negotiate the price, and finally buy. And then you had to find a property manager to handle leasing and operations for you. What a nightmare. I've always been gun shy about rental real estate investing due to these various operational headaches that can come with it. But Roofstock has changed all that. Every one of these properties comes leased up and pre-certified by the Roofstock team. They even connect you with vetted property managers who handle all of the day-to-day headaches for you. They browse properties all over the country, including locally here in Los Angeles and even my hometown in Winston-Salem. And learn more about how to generate real estate income with peace of mind, visit roofstock.com forward slash meb. Again, that's roofstock.com forward slash meb. And now, back to the show. You were the first person to, as I was tweeting about angel and VC to enlighten me to the world of some of the preferential tax treatment of the QSBS rules. I'd never even heard of it. And you started tweeting about it and some monster that, that doesn't, that wouldn't work through funds. Would it, that'd be only on individual. Oh, it does to explain what that acronym is and what it means. Cause it's a monster monster benefit that it I hadn't even heard about until a couple It is years an amazing ago. tax benefit and All right, explain. too few people are, are aware of it. So section 1202 of the Internal Revenue Code details what's called qualifying small business stock, QSBS. And an issuer of QSBS stock is basically a C corporation with gross assets of $50 million or under. And that's, again, gross assets on the balance sheet. That's not valuation. And it cannot be in certain excluded lines of business. It cannot be in professional services, financial services, hotels, restaurants, or real estate. But it can be basically... Which is like a who's who of things you don't want to be investing in anyway. We can thank Congress for keeping (laughs) us away from sectors like that, I I mean, in LA, like, that's my favorite. I have so many friends in that world of restaurants and movies. And and it just seems like they're always... I'm like, this seems like the worst possible investment world. They love it and some do really well. But to me, it's like my... And real estate is also my nightmare. Anyway, keep going. So... As long as you're investing in a C-Corp that has $50 million or under that's not in one of these sectors, and basically every tech startup qualifies, and you hold your shares for five years, you can exclude from taxation 100% of your gains up to $10 million or 10 times your investment per issuer per year, whichever is greater. Which is basically every single investment you could possibly do as an angel or seed, right? Like, I don't, you're not investing in anything that's got 50 million in assets. Correct. And a 10x or 10 million means you have to be writing a million dollar check or less for it to even hit. And, and then if it goes 10x or above, like it's. If you're writing a $50,000 check, you have to turn $50,000 into $10 million. And that's tax-free. Tax-free. So that doesn't even have to go in your IRA. That's, to me... One should never invest in startups in your IRA because of the QSBS benefit. 
custodying startups in IRAs before the QSBS benefit was cleared up in 2015 was actually kind of a good idea. And, you know, certain well-known investors did that. Mitt Romney, of course, did some of his investments through his IRA and generated an IRA that was worth, I think, on public disclosures of $200 million. (laughs) That's awesome. Peter Thiel is known to have invested in Facebook through his IRA, and his IRA could be a 10-figure IRA at this point. Max Levkin invested in Yelp, and if you read Yelp's S1 from 2006, you can see the number of shares he held in his IRA. Now there's really no reason to do that because of the simplification of the QSBS rules in 2015. And no one talks about this. And to me, so... This kind of started me along. So I started investing in private companies back in like 2014, just dabbling, trying to get a education. You know, I call this tuition. And so I've done a very, very small level, um, but I've been doing it about 25 companies. And kind of, I laugh because, and I'm very self-aware about this. I say I've done almost no asset management fintech deals probably because the reason I'm doing all these others is I'm the patsy. You know, I'm like, that sounds amazing, this idea. But it's going well so far. But but the whole point that really changed my way of thinking was twofold. One was this massive tax benefit. So I, in my mind, I said, if I can just match the S&P on an after-tax basis, it's a huge benefit. And then, and then two is that I think it checks a, ma- a really big behavioral box that I think a lot of people, and this is a benefit of a fund as well, as well as investing individually, is that you're locked into these investments. And the problem for so many people with public markets is they they can wake up every day and check E-Trade or Robinhood, I guess is the better example. And by the way, I love the concept of Robinhood. Their Twitter feed is like the new... What what was the big poster child for the brokerage commercials in the last bubble? Was it Ameritrade? Or E-Trade. E- was it E-Trade? Money coming out the wazoo. Yeah. I'm trading stocks. But Robinhood essentially has these now, their tweets. And I, I look at them and, and I'm just kind of face palming about it. Anyway, but the beauty of private equity or angel investing and through individual funds is that you're locked in. A lot of these companies' liquidity is three, five, ten, never years. And so that's a good thing. I argue that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. It really makes you do your due diligence up front. It makes you focus on asymmetry because it's only worth locking up your money if you have a shot at 100x returns or something like that. And then finally, to go back to the QSBS treatment, QSBS is passed through to LPs in venture funds. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I think it's one of the least talked about but most important topics out there. Yeah. Uh, so we'll link to some show notes stuff on there. And you should always make sure that a stock purchase agreement that you sign with any startup that you invest in has an attestation in it that the company is a QSBS issuer. All of the term sheets that we sign from good law firms, not, not term sheets, stock purchase agreements and investor rights agreements, have a clause in there saying that they are QSBS issuers. If they don't, we ask the law firm to redo the documents and put them in there so that we have that in our files. And what, what are the steps you would have to do? Is it just you do it at the beginning? Is that kind of a best practices? Do you have to do that? You don't have to do that, but Thanks. if seven, 10 years later, you take the exclusion on your taxes. And if there's any questions, it's better if the purchase paperwork that you have that you're retaining in your files anyways, has a very clear statement that the company was a qualified issuer at the time of your purchase. And so the, you, you, the time you make the note is when it gets sold and you report the gains. Correct. And okay. there's a there's a very simple form that's an addendum to your 1040 there's, under which you can claim this. Alex, there's no simple forms with the IRS. That 
<laughs> I will. I will agree with that. Oh my god! All right. So I want to talk about one or two, just one or two more things before we wrap up. We've already held you for an hour. I want to talk about themes. You know, one one of the areas that you guys think a lot about is a pretty popular topic these days, which is AI and machine learning. And this is unrelated, but Alex is the guy that I go to when I said, "Hey, I want to buy." a virtual reality rig just to understand this space and to try it out and talk to his partner. And they gave me all the, all the specs. So we ended up buying the PlayStation one. Mm-hmm. And first of all, it's like a life, uh, this is a little dramatic, but it's a life changing experience to experience it for the first time. Like I thought it was astonishing already how impressive it is. You know, just to go through and experience it, like everyone that's come over and done it, it's kind of jaw dropping. And there's a good example where I, I started playing a game and we only have like three or four games and it was some alien shoot 'em up that you suggested. Space pirate? Uh, no, it was your partner suggested it. Okay. Vickery. You, if you said it, I would remember. Anyway, but I started playing. I'm like, hey, I'm just going to try this for like an hour. And the better way that I describe it to people is it's like being in an immersive movie to me it's not really like playing a video game so it's not social so i haven't played it since and this moment is kind of defining reason why it's because my wife (laughs) came up at two in the morning and i and she's like mab 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 and i was like what and i like pull up the visor i'm like sweating i'm like cramping she's like do you know what time it is i was like what and she's like it's two in the you've been playing this for four hours straight (laughs) without a break and i was like oh my god that's really horrifying but also amazing but to me it's not like i couldn't be like hey back back in the day we used to go play nba jams or tech mobile like it was social right and you hang out with people and i'm sure it will be to a a whole generation i mean esports is already massive but one i just wanted to say it was amazing and the and the the one defining characteristic that really blew my mind was the intro game it comes with you're like in a room at a bar and there's some things on the table. And so your first time just trying out, so you can pick up stuff and do things. There's a cigar on the table, which you can light. And then in my head, I'm like, there's no way I could actually just like pretend to inhale and blow out smoke. And sure enough, I pretended to inhale and then it blew out smoke on the screen. And that to me was just like the, oh my God, we're <laughs> in a new world. And I was like Googling it. I'm like, this doesn't really like see me making this mouth gesture. Anyway, that was the intro to this comment. And so it's sitting on my table and we're going to sell it just because I don't want the option of playing this game, in which case my life will devolve into playing. So let's, let's talk about virtual, virtual reality because we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of virtual reality startups and we've actually invested in none. Hmm. Um, virtual reality, as you mentioned, is a very antisocial type of product. In fact, I once heard somebody say that virtual reality is the most effective form of contraception ever, invest- yeah, ever invented. Ever invented. Video games in general. Because it cuts you off from human contact. Yeah. And the problem with virtual reality is that the headsets are all here. The products are all here. You can buy them off the shelf today. You can use them. But nobody's figured out what the application is. And I always think about... As usual, porn will be the first. Right. But how much of a revenue model there is there and then what kind of multiples you can put on something like that in an acquisition is a totally different conversation. But I always like to remind people about the early history 
of personal computers in the 1970s because the Altair 8800 came out in 1974. That's what convinced Bill Gates to drop out of college and start Microsoft. The Apple One came out in 75 or 76. The Apple II came out in 77. That entire time, no one could figure out what to do with them. No one could figure out what the applications were. If you look at the advertisements from those days, from the OEMs, what you'll see is they all thought that the best use of a home computer was going to be recipes, uh, housewives storing recipes on her kitchen computer. They all had this image in their ads. And of course, that's not what people actually use PCs for. And it wasn't until 1979 that the concept of a killer app came out. This idea that there's an app that you spend 40 bucks to buy, but you then buy the $3,000 computer back in 1979 when 3000 bucks was a lot of money because you had to run it. And that was VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet. And VisiCalc made financial analysts, accountants, and other quantitative professionals so much more powerful than they ever would be, so much more productive that you had to buy it. Back in those days, spreadsheets were spread sheets. They were very large chalkboard size pieces of paper that you wrote on in light pencil. And if you made a calculation error, you had to go back up to cell A1 and start all over again. And so the spreadsheet totally changed all that. And people rushed to buy computers in order to do that. That's why Apple Computer is around today. You're just giving me sweaty palms thinking back to middle and high school using whiteout and typewriters that like could go back. I mean, this was, this, mm-hmm. I would still use these back in the day and just remembering the misery in doing that. Oh, yeah. Keep going. So we are today in between the introduction of the hardware and the innovation in the application layer in VR. The hardware is all there. Apps are coming out. No one has yet really figured out what that killer app is. And the challenge with VR is that it is equally likely that the killer app will come out next month or in 10 years. And there's no way to know. And there's no way to predict. And so until that happens, we feel like VR is a market awaiting a customer and a market and a, and a technology awaiting a use case. It's funny because I, I, as I would get a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of these angel deals in the VR world, I just forward them to Alex. So you see this one, he's like, nope, pass, nope, pass, <laughs> nope, pass. So thank you. Did All I, right. Did I talk you out of that VR for dogs deal? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> it's funny. So by the way, one of the things that you can go in and do and we do this for our prolific tweeters. There's not that many, but you're one. And so you can go into, there's a website called Favstar or Favstar. Awful website, but it has utility. It's the only website I know where you can go and sort people's tweets by their all-time most liked and retweeted. So we did this for you. Your, <laughs> num- your number one, which had like 10,000 retweets, was about the Google memo that was posted all over the neighborhood. Yes, that's when the alt-right decided to uh, come after me. I'm actually surprised that's still on Facebook because I, I deleted that to well, but, but the, prevent them from coming after but me. But the, the, yeah, the link is broken, so I couldn't even actually open it. <laughs> so you got some good haters. I've only blocked like five people, which is funny because you have to do something really offensive to get blocked by me. And I don't talk about politics ever, but I remember a guy I ran into in New York. He's like, Meb, you blocked me on Twitter. I'm like, well, what'd you do, a-hole? Because you had to have done something pretty bad for me to block you. Anyway, your number two tweet was, and this may lead into the topic, I'm going to read both these of, of kind of AI machine learning. 
if we're done with VR. You may have more to add. I keep interrupting you. We can go on to AI now okay. and ML. Okay, sorry. Um, it says, tweet, you worried about an AI apocalypse? I'm getting emails from Google Plus earnestly asking if I know my own mother. That's one. <laughs> and the other one was, if car companies advertise like IBM Watson, Ford would be telling us they have a car that's powered by seawater that can fly 1,000 miles per hour. All right, that's the lead-in. Now you got to tell me all about AI and machine learning. Yeah, so let's talk about AI and ML, because AI and ML are in many ways the opposite of VR, where VR is a technology awaiting an application. Uh, AI and ML are real businesses and real revenue generators for pretty much everybody except IBM Watson today, where it's all a bunch of hand-wavy vaporware. Uh, And we'll get into that. I'm deeply skeptical of Watson. There's something about Watson involved in an ETF launch. Do you see that, Jeff? I'll have to look that up. I I saw that come across my screen. I just ignored it, but I I saw a mention of that. Keep going. You can safely ignore almost everything about (laughs) IBM Watson that you hear. It sounds like a jaded former Jeopardy loser now that IBM Watson (laughs) destroys people in Jeopardy. You just, maybe that's the deep-seated emotional baggage you have. Perhaps, uh, perhaps, but playing Jeopardy is the only thing that it is demonstrably good at. (laughs) So uh, we will, we will stipulate to its trivia skills, Mm. um, in terms of anything else, uh, I am deeply skeptical. But let's talk about what AI and ML do, because we see a lot, despite the fact that AI and ML are absolutely real and that we're investing around it, we also see a lot of hand-wavy hype around it. And we like to think about ways, really simple ways to sort through that. And so uh, at, our, at our firm, we have a, a little mnemonic that we use to sort of help us to remember all the things that AI can do and that it cannot do. And the mnemonic is SOAR, S-O-A-R. And so AI and ML can do one of four things. They can do segmentation, they can do optimization, they can do anomaly detection, and they can recognize images. S-O-A-R, segmentation, optimization, anomaly detection, and recognition of images. So like hot dog, not hot dog? Do you, yes, get my, do you get my reference? Indeed. If any Silicon uh, Valley TV show watchers. That's indeed. great. And so that, that is actually a legitimate application of AI. That said, doing a simple yes or no image classification product is something that undergrads can do today. That, yeah. that's, that's table stakes. And the image recognition libraries that would enable someone to do that are open source. So that there is nothing there that one can build anything on outside the confines of HBO. So with regard to, to AI and ML, every application that you're seeing today that's generating revenue is some combinatorial assemblage of those four core capabilities. And if you can't break down what AI and ML are doing to one of those four capabilities, then you're probably being sold a bill of goods in some way. That said, within those four core capabilities, there is infinite application today. So we have an AI and ML company that creates better short form video streams for people watching video on places like CNBC or the LA Times and hundreds of other sites. And it keeps people on site longer because it serves them in an autoplay format, more relevant videos, which means they 
see more ads and generate more revenue for the publishers. We have a company that... And that's always a great business model. Anything that makes... You can like go to a company and say, this is going to make you more money. It's just no-brainer. Right. right. So in terms of optimization, that's an optimization application. Another optimization application, we have a company that helps consumer packaged goods companies, beverage companies, food companies, etc., to optimize their pricing, their SKU assortment, and their sales and promotion in real time, in every store. So they can tell one of their customers is the world's largest beer company. And they can tell the world's largest beer company how to price a six-pack in every single store, when to change it, and when to do a sale, and when to switch in a new product for whatever their goal is. You might want to just increase top-line sell-through. You might want to increase margin. You might want to take away share from your competitor. And there is a pricing strategy for each of those. But to do that on a store-by-store basis in real time is something that no human could do, no non-ML or AI software could ever do. And if you ever tried to put it in a spreadsheet, you'd probably have to run it on the entirety of Amazon Web Services to prevent Excel from crashing. You'd have to pay for Watson. Exactly. And, and, And then hold your breath. And so our company enables their customers to do this for the first time. Uh, Another one of our companies is working with a very prominent subscription commerce startup clearinghouse that is based here in LA and that was recently acquired and helping them on churn prediction. What was the the old company you used to put a penny on and send in and you would get Columbia House? I wonder if that still exists. There's like definitely, there was like a certain amount of people that were still subscribing to AOL dial-up our buddy was saying his mom still did it like a few years ago. Anyway, anyway yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, so in any case, these, these are some of the applications of AI and ML that are real today, that are sol- solving real business problems. And crucially, they answer that question that I alluded to earlier about why now. These are not businesses that could have been built just a few years ago because the data sets being collected weren't large enough to properly train a deep learning network. The deep learning frameworks and uh, libraries were not available, and the people were not available because there were just so few people well-trained on this. And so one of the reasons why we're so excited about AI and ML is that they're solving really big problems that are worth a lot of money, and they're right now, and they are of this moment in a way that few other technologies are. And that's, you know, we, we talk a lot about on this podcast, the phrase we've adopted recently, which is kind of that frustration arbitrage. And this is just simple, like low hanging fruit of companies becoming better and more efficient. It's such an easy way to describe like the first opportunity, right? Where they could go in and just, hey, we can make your margins go up 10%. Like, why, why would you not? One of our companies is looking at machine data coming in off of their customer's equipment. And their customer, in this case, is the largest industrial laundry company in the world. And so their washer and dryers are the ones that power big hotels and prisons and schools and laundromats. And they all have Raspberry Pi devices on them collecting data about the machine. But this is an industrial laundry company. They can't afford to hire data scientists in in their workforce. So they've hired, they've contracted with our company to analyze this data and we can now help them to predict when parts are going to fail. We can help them predict when maintenance needs to be done in a way that's going to save them tens of millions of dollars a year. I'm surprised a lot of the big consultants aren't trying to like wedge their way in this, or are they? 
in many cases, what AI and ML is replacing is the work of junior consultants. Interesting. Okay. So the consulting firms are going to have to move up market to more difficult and creative work because they are losing the base level work that's been their bread and butter for many years to AI. Future proofing. There you go. Another job going bye bye. Junior consultant. You had a good quote that said, the best part about being a venture investor is I'm living two years into the future at all times. What I learned yesterday is less relevant than what's going to happen tomorrow than it is in almost any other field. So give us a, give us a quick look next couple years. Could be AI, could be what else that these conversations you're having. Cause one of the nicest things I like about at least dabbling in private investing is the optimistic just experience of getting to talk to entrepreneurs, people that are highly motivated and optimistic, building the, the cool ideas of the future. Kind of what's what's going on that you're seeing that's particularly interesting to you, or any companies or ideas, or what else? What else? What else has got you excited? Well, there, there's just so many problems that we would consider intractable with the technology that we have today that are becoming possible and that are moving from latent and needed and unmet to things that are being met. One of the companies that we're working with used satellite imagery and object recognition at incredible scale to map within 24 hours every street in Houston and in the Florida Keys Mm. that was flooded. Hmm. And they shared that data with uh, a number of the response teams that were going in to plan routes and to plan where you can set up triage facilities and to determine where boats were needed and where trucks were needed. And that enabled more people to be rescued quicker in a way that would never have been possible. Like if this would not have been possible in a hurricane two years ago. And now it's how we're going to respond to every natural disaster. Well, we're knock on wood. LA is, we have, we haven't had ours in a long time. And then we got the world series here again. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little nervous. We haven't had a big shaker in, in many, many years. Hot days in October are kind of earthquake weather. So oh, let's, let's hope, uh, let's hope that's not the case. Don't tell me that. We had a 4.0 last night off of Catalina. Did you feel it? No, but I also ate a bunch of Indian food. So it might've been the same thing. So <laughs> I, um, earthquake Meb. How, how often does Google maps update? Do you have any idea? Jeff, we, we Google that. They're, they're constantly updating. They're driving their cars around so, everywhere. In fact, they've recently updated those cars. So they're collecting much better data than they were a few years ago. But there's all sorts of data that can be collected by anybody now because there are so many microsatellites up there in orbit that are going up with um, SpaceX payloads and other things. I was laughing because my brother and I, you know, we have some river land in Colorado. And um, do you see? Google Maps, uh, the satellite data on Google Maps is typically one, three years old, yet it says the updates happen about once a month. So the updates happen once a month, although it could be up to three years old somehow. Anyway, uh, so we were in Iceland and we were, we were talking about, you know, a neighbor had asked us if, if he could, you know, go down to the river every once in a while and put out a chair and enjoy the sunset by the river. We said, being good neighbors, said, of course. And then we were talking about doing a, a, a fishing trip and rafting. And so we pull it up on Google Maps. Just I'm like, hey, it's pretty cool. You can look at the satellite and look at what's going on. And sure enough, there's a RV parked on our land with like a storage shed. And I was like, WTF, Wayne, what the hell? 
And it turned out this guy was squatting on our land. You know, he said unintentionally, he didn't know where the boundaries were, but great example of technology. We were in, in Iceland looking this up, not as world changing as disaster prevention, but still keeps the squatters off better than me going out there with a shotgun. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. It, a couple questions that we kind of like to end with, and this could go on for hours. We didn't even get into a lot of the nonprofit stuff. So we'll have to have you back on in like six months to see what else is going on in sure. the world. And we can talk about that because I don't want to keep you all day. But what would you say, and this could be, this doesn't have to be VC. It could be private hedge fund related. What has been your most memorable investment or trade? Good, bad, whatever. Take your time. Play the cue, the Jeopardy music. When I was in college, <laughs> When I was in college, I met a kid who was a uh, freshman when I was a senior, and I helped him to get a job with a guy that I knew that I had worked with, and he called me, the employer called me about 60 days afterwards, and he said, do you know anyone else like David? And I said, I don't know, what do you mean? And he, go, and he said, I have 24 people on my team, and if I found three more people like David, I would only need four people. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I helped uh, him to open some other doors and, to, and helped him out in, in a number of ways, and... Uh, he once asked me when he was still in school, like, you know, what can I ever do for you? You've helped me in all these things. And I said, one day you're going to start a company. One day you're going to found something. And when you do, you call me and I will write you a check. And seven years, six or seven years later, in the fall of 2008, which we all remember was a nice, peaceful time, <laughs> he uh, started his company. I loved it back then. It was a trend follower. This was like the best time. We didn't have any assets under management though. And, but every day I was like skipping to work because was enjoying the world imploding because as a trend follower, you're kind of sitting on the sidelines and watching this. But so, but it had the dual impact of being miserable for everyone else. So it's kind the, of like... The rest of us were not as... If you're like a you short were. seller, it's like you cheer up to a point and then you worry the whole system is going to collapse in the fall of 2008. It felt like it was. Yeah. So... Lehman Brothers had collapsed. Wachovia and Washington Mutual were collapsing. We were uncertain about TARP ever happening. And that's right when David was saying, I'm going to raise my seed round for my startup. <laughs> and I, of course, was dealing with the difficulty in the markets at the time. Uh, I was a public market investor mostly at the time. And uh, because of everything going on, I didn't have a huge amount of liquidity. And yet I knew that David's startup, whatever it was going to be, was going to be something I wanted to be involved with. And I made a conscious choice to pay my property taxes late and take a hit, take a penalty on that so I could get every dollar I could into his startup. And he sold that company four and a half years later to a publicly traded company. It's one of the best investments I've ever made. He bided his time for a couple of years until he couldn't take it anymore and got fired and had all his stock vest on the day he got fired um, <laughs> and then started a new company. And I was like I was in the first one. I was basically the check that opened the bank account on that second company. And he has had funding from Excel Partners, Charles River and Highland for that startup. And that's still, cool. a, still an active investment today. And so, you know, backing somebody who whose talent I recognized when I was a wise old 21 year old and he was a 17 year old. And the fact that, you know, I'm 37 today, he's 34, and he's you know doing everything I knew he was going to be doing from the moment I saw him as a 17-year-old is uh, something that uh, is pretty cool. That's, that's, I love those stories. It gives me chills. Are there any regret FOMO deals that you passed on? Oh, I could talk about this for hours. Yeah. Are you kidding? 
a decade ago when I was uh, over a decade ago when I was at Anthem, I spent six months looking at a, a video game company and I ultimately passed on it because I looked at the size of their specialty controller and the box that it would have to come in. And I went to Best Buy and Walmart and I calculated how much volumetric space their boxes would take in order for it to be a platinum selling game and said, they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to stack these up to the rafters in the month of December to be a big seller for Christmas. And I just said, I can't imagine that the stores would spend that much of their space on a single SKU. And I passed on it for that reason. And um, the controller was a guitar. Oh man. And that was guitar hero. That was awesome. I, I used to play that. I was an amazing guitar hero player. I could not play a single song on the actual guitar, but what an amazing game, whatever, whatever that kind of had it's time in the sun. Is it, is there anything like that still? That was sold to Activision for hundreds of millions of dollars. That would have been an excellent investment. Wow. And that kind of, I mean, that spawned a whole genre and a lot of competitors, I think with, with drums and everything else. Right. But, uh, I, I, I sort of outthought guitar hero. I outthought myself on (laughs) why that investment would not work. So there's, there's a handful of songs that I hear on the radio or Spotify to this day where it just it takes me back to Guitar Hero. Like the only time <laughs> I hear Wayward Son, I'm like, all right, Guitar Hero, perfect. That's great. I love that. Man. Carry on Wayward Meb. Yeah, exactly. T- talk to me. We're going to wind this down, but tell me, um, talk to me a little bit about resources. So you were talking about software, VC software. What, what are there any newsletters, websites that you really like? Any core? Um, yeah must use resources to use and, and whether it's sorting, finding deals, all that good stuff. Yeah. So for uh, quickly being able to tell who's gotten funding and what competitors have raised and from whom, Mattermark mm-hmm. and uh, Crunchbase are yep. excellent. Both of those have websites and mobile apps and both of those apps are on the front screen of my iPhone. I use them daily. So that would be top on your top five apps. Indeed. But uh, I suspect they don't have more than you know, high five figures in terms of downloads and yeah. active users because it's a very esoteric app. But it's critical for someone in my business. In terms of newsletters, Dan Primack's uh, term sheet uh, used to be called ProRata, or maybe it's ProRata now, but he's with Axios. That's sort of the uh, must-read every morning. Strictly VC and Crunchbase Daily and Mattermark Daily are also excellent newsletters. And then in podcasts, 20-Minute VC by Harry Stebbings interviews everybody in our business. I don't, that's amazing. I don't know that one. Harry Stebbings. That's been around for a long time though, hasn't it? A few years. Harry started it when he was an 18 year old. Okay. That, that's, yeah, that's in, a story uh, I remember. In England. And he is now a professional VC with his own fund. Yeah. Um, I've read that's a, that's a hard, I love that story. Yeah. Is there a good resource if someone wanted to go look for some, um, seed series A VC firms? They said, all right, I'm going to invest in a handful of funds like, what, like is, is there a way to go screen or look? Is yeah. there a good site? Just think about great startups and great kinds of companies that you'd want to be an investor in. So okay. if, you, if you like you know, enterprise software type of companies, go look at who invested in MongoDB or in Coupa Software or in Shopify or any company like that. And then go on Crunchbase and Mattermark and look at who their seed investors were. We, we have so much to talk about, Alex. I was going to sh- put you on the spot and shark tank you and give you about five terrible ideas. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll do you're, it next time. You're We're, dead to me, man. This, this might be a quarterly one. <laughs> yeah. Where can people best find you? Easiest place is on Twitter. Alex Rubelkava. 
And if they want to email you about stage, about your new internship program we just started today, <laughs> or about investments or anything but app pitches, what's the website? Uh, our website is stagevp, as in stageventurepartners.com. And my email is alex at stagevp.com. All right. Well, ex- expect an inflow of um, emails coming. Alex, I, it's been a blast. I'm, I'm happy for those emails. I got to inbox zero last night, so the inbox is primed and ready to go. Awesome. Look, listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. It was really fun. Send us feedback, questions. Send them to Alex if you want, but also for the mailbag at feedback at com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes if you're enjoying it. Leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.